You are listening to a recording from Archem Audio, a series on the theory and practice of Archem meditation. Here we will discuss an aspect of Archem meditation that's essential to its success, the free mental attitude. The recording is based on an interview with Dr. Ara Holan. He founded the Archem School of Meditation in 1966. In the recording, Dr. Holan explains how to cultivate and maintain a free mental attitude while meditating. He discusses the kinds of change that the free mental attitude can bring about. Let us start with a few basics. Arca meditation should be practiced regularly for half an hour twice a day. When we close our eyes to meditate, our task is to repeat mentally our meditation sound with a free mental attitude. It is the quality of this free mental attitude that determines the progress of our meditation, both on a short-term and on a long-term basis. That is why we will focus on the role of the free mental attitude in Arca meditation. What is a free mental attitude? An attitude characterizes the way we do something. Usually we think of attitudes in relation to the external world. What is England's current attitude towards her former colonies? What are the attitudes of men to pregnant women? In the case of Arkham meditation, we talk about an inner attitude, or the way in which we respond to the phenomena that we are experiencing during meditation. It is important to understand at the outset that the free mental attitude is tied to and sometimes affected by our level of self-awareness while meditating, but it is neither a feeling nor a particular experience nor a state of mind. Rather, it describes a way of approaching or responding to things or events. On a short-term basis, our free mental attitude helps us to relax and does so by alleviating the residual stress from our recent experiences. On a long-term basis, it may bring about changes in the deeper psychological structures of the mind and the personality. The latter are structures that tend to stay unaltered throughout life and are usually established early in our history. In other words, the free mental attitude is a creative and dynamic force that we use or access in meditation in order to respond to the events that occur in our minds while we meditate. And it affects both our day-to-day well-being and the structure of our psyche. Let me say a little more about the meditation sound, which is one of the most important tools of Arkham meditation. The meditation sound has no meaning. The repetition of it is always volitional, and we may repeat it in many different ways, with force, concentration or determination, carelessly or half-heartedly, by sub-vocalizing it or by thinking it. 
Not all of these ways will further the processes of archimeditation, and in the following discussion we will consider the most effective way to repeat the meditation sound. Ideally, we repeat the meditation sound internally, and the word free in free mental attitude underscores the quality with which we do so. In other words, when meditating we should repeat the meditation sound with ease, without strain or force, and without concentration or pressure. If we do not exhibit a free mental attitude when meditating, we are likely to repeat the meditation sound in ways that hamper or halt the processes that meditation initiates. So how would you describe what happens to us when we meditate? When we close our eyes and repeat the meditation sound with a free mental attitude, we initiate certain changes in ourselves. First, our muscles relax. Then our autonomous nervous systems and the bodily functions that they govern follow suit. Our hearts, breathing, peripheral blood circulation and skin conductance work in ways that indicate we are moving into a deep level of relaxation. On the mental level, similar processes occur. Our thoughts, images and feelings start to flow in an undirected manner. Sometimes the flow of thought may seem discontinuous. We may leap from one image to a reflection, or jump from the present to the past, or from a mundane thought into fantasy, without any warning or in no apparent order. Gradually, we will become so absorbed in this flow of thoughts, images or impressions that we may simply forget to repeat the meditation sound. Is this moment of forgetting, this moment in which we forget to repeat the meditation sound, just like any other moment of forgetting that's caused by the distractions of daily life, or is there something more to it? When we achieve a state of physical and mental relaxation during meditation, deeper undercurrents of our mind, undercurrents that are normally beyond our awareness, are given the opportunity to shape the contents and the attitudes of our stream of consciousness. As these deeper undercurrents move towards the surface of our mind, the gap between our conscious and unconscious selves is narrowed. When this happens, we take the first important step towards changing our conscious selves for the better. It is important that we do not, at this stage, make a very common error. As I mentioned earlier, the more we relax, the more our thoughts and feelings will tend to become discontinuous and free-floating and that, as a result of our absorption in this stream of thoughts, feelings and images, we may forget to repeat the meditation sound. When this happens, many people believe that they are doing a poor job of meditating. They give themselves a hard time. They try to pull themselves together 
try to force themselves to concentrate, but this is a mistake. What we are facing here is one of the primary challenges of Arca meditation, the challenge of maintaining our free mental attitude in the face of an apparent lapse in our meditation technique. We should not feel any sense of guilt at such a moment or any compulsion to return immediately to the act of repeating the meditation sound. We should respond instead with a laissez-faire attitude because one of the main objectives of the meditation is to give the unconscious the freedom to represent its residual stresses, emotions and desires on the conscious level. If our access to the unconscious requires that we forget the meditation sound, then we must let it go, rather than inhibit the meditation process by compelling ourselves to remember to repeat it. It is only by maintaining our free mental attitude that we can ensure a further enhancement or deepening of the processes of meditation. We should not, however, make the related mistake of believing that it is only when we forget the meditation sound that we will have direct access to the movements of the unconscious. We cannot simply dispose of the meditation sound, assuming that in doing so we are giving the unconscious the best possible working conditions. Such assumptions have been proven wrong time and again. The problem with this myth of direct access is that, unknown to us, it allows the unconscious to mobilize too many psychological defenses and pockets of hidden resistance. In spite of our best intentions, our attempts to make direct access to the unconscious will prevent us from reaching our desired goal. We must take an indirect approach, and in Arca meditation, the indirect approach involves repeating the meditation sound with a free mental attitude. The results we achieve in Arca meditation are not bestowed upon us by the grace of God, by astral beings, nor by the means of a guru. Nor do they follow from the constellation of the stars, the action of certain drugs or a particular diet, or any other external influence for that matter. The results are based solely on our acquired meditation skills, that is, the way we act during meditation and the ways in which we repeat the meditation sound. There is no magic involved. Each one of us is solely responsible for what happens to us during meditation. What we get out of Arca meditation is determined not by what we want, need or believe we deserve, but by what we do as a meditator. Others may help us, guide us, inspire us and clarify for us the problems that arise. But in the end, the results of our meditation depend entirely on us. 
It isn't just easy to gain something from Akka meditation, but it isn't difficult either. To achieve success, we must meditate regularly and from time to time discuss our practice with someone more experienced than ourselves. Akka meditation requires from us a certain patience and a certain willingness to critique our meditation practices honestly, and a certain refusal to take shortcuts or detours that prevent us from reaching our meditation goals. But if we are patient and willing to devote a year or more to refining our meditation process, we will become more and more skilled at meditation and provide ourselves with the opportunity to enrich ourselves from the inside. So the meditation sound is a given entity, but the way we repeat the sound is an entirely personal creation and it may very well be shaped differently with each repetition of it. The same, it seems, holds for the attitude with which we repeat the sound. It's a necessary aspect of the meditation process, but it's something that each of us develops for ourselves over time. The key seems to be that we must avoid any sense of effort when we're repeating the meditation sound. We want our meditation to be effective, but the notions of achieving and any demonstration of force and effort are themselves antithetical to a free mental attitude. The free mental attitude is, in fact, the very opposite of conscious effort. It requires us to give up some of our control over our conscious ego. This is only possible when we repeat the meditation sound in a free and open-minded way that involves no effort. It is only then that we can let ourselves go. When we achieve that sense of liberation, we allow the unconscious to represent certain of its aspects to the conscious self. The free mental attitude, then, helps us create an inner space in which the spontaneous activities of the mind can unfold. And the more we keep on repeating the sound in the right way, the more we invite the deeper layers of the mind to manifest themselves on the edge of our consciousness. This is, of course, easier to achieve in theory than in practice. The better we become at meditating, the more adept our unconscious becomes at distorting our meditation practice in ways that we neither realize nor understand. The free mental attitude tends to inspire its opposite, a desire for control, and when it does, the meditator often unknowingly starts to concentrate. It may sound paradoxical, but in a sense, relaxation often produces concentration and tension, and good meditation starts to produce its opposite, a form of meditation riddled with problems. And the more the meditator attempts to solve the problems by concentrating, 
the more ineffective his or her meditation becomes. What exactly is the problem? We should think of it as interference. The closer meditation brings us to certain sources of unconscious tension or conflict, the harder our unconscious will work to prevent us from reaching those sources. Thus, the more we relax physically and mentally, the greater the likelihood that we will experience interference from unresolved matters in our unconscious. The meditation problems that result are condensations of existential problems rooted in the unconscious. It is difficult for us to solve these problems precisely because they point to the need for change in some fundamental aspect of the inner structures, structures that influence how we tend to see and act in the world. Such changes take time. The challenge for us is to recognize that there is actually a positive aspect of this interference. It indicates the presence of some entity that we have been unconsciously repressing. The interference signals that whatever this thing is, it is on the verge of becoming discernible and comprehensible to us. And the only way it will actually become so is if we manage to maintain a free mental attitude to it. But where exactly does the solution lie? It may seem somewhat surprising to us, but the resolution of the problem that the interference poses will not necessarily have anything to do with us managing to grasp it intellectually. The solution lies in an easy flow of the repetition of the meditation sound and a continuous free mental attitude. This may, at first, sound simplistic or reductive, but further discussion of the problem will show us that it is not. The solutions found through Arca meditation are organic. They are a result of how we act and relate, both to ourselves and to others, rather than of what we know and feel. In fact, our intellects are often the last part of us to grasp the essence of a meditation problem as is the case with most existential problems. What more can you say about the meditation problem? As I suggested earlier, there's the concentration problem. When we concentrate on something, we do our best to focus on it to the exclusion of everything else. To do so, we exercise our will. Concentration implies sharp contrasts between the centre and the periphery of the mind, or between those things that we let into or exclude from it. It is a strenuous act which requires abstinence and discipline. In daily life, we usually regard concentration as a positive thing. 
We say, for example, that we need to concentrate on our studies or our work in order to do well. But in Arca meditation, active concentration is always negative and wrong. If we do concentrate on the images or thoughts that arise during meditation, we are likely to repeat the meditation sound in ways that prevent a continuous flow of images and thoughts. We tend to make this mistake because we believe that concentration is the best way to solve a meditation problem. But if we concentrate, we let ourselves get caught in a paradox. In our determination to abide by the principal rule of Arca meditation, that is, the practice of a free mental attitude, we do just the opposite. We begin to concentrate. So, to recap, when the meditation sound is repeated with a free mental attitude, the spontaneous activities of the mind are also given freedom to manifest themselves to us. These spontaneous activities represent our resources, our creativity, our surplus of energy, our inspiration and our ability to make associations between things. They also represent our limitations, our hang-ups, skewed versions of our experiences, the things we repress and our avoidance tendencies, all of which may block the progress we're trying to achieve through meditation. So is it likely that when we're meditating, we're from time to time going to experience some tension? Even as we begin to allow our thoughts to flow more freely, we tend to activate the mechanisms within us that resist change. We usually do this by insisting to ourselves that we must do something that implies concentration. But our resistance to change can take other forms and may manifest itself not just over the course of a single half an hour of meditation, but over the course of weeks and even months. And we may have no real understanding of what is taking place. Often our tendency to concentrate and our desire to express a free mental attitude are in direct conflict. But we have no idea that this battle is taking place because we tend to concentrate in ways that are difficult to recognize. In some cases, we may even rationalize the act of concentration. In other instances, we are simply subject to covert acts of resistance from unconscious parts of our mind. When this happens, the act of concentration constrains, limits or diverts our attention away from certain perceptions, feelings or thoughts without us even being aware that a certain constriction of our mental processes has taken place. Inaccessible and unconscious parts of our mind hamper, limit and fetter us without us having the slightest awareness of what is going on. But if we can somehow manage to continue to repeat the meditation sound with a free mental attitude, we will 
very slowly change the structures of the mind that are mobilizing our psychological defenses. Conversely, if we continue concentrating, we will see no change in our underlying psychological structures and will not experience the vicissitudes of growth. In other words, in the showdown between the forces of relaxation and the forces of concentration, either side may win. The odds are stacked against change unless we can find a method or a way of life that will allow us to reflect deeply on our existence. Change through meditation is possible, but only if we can find a way to keep repeating the meditation sound without simultaneously shutting ourselves off from the internal conflicts that are revealing themselves to us. We will make these changes through a series of consolidation phases that may take months or even years. During these phases, we gradually allow unconscious matter to come closer and closer to the surface of our mind. But don't let me leave you with a false impression that the unconscious forces are only at work from time to time. When we meditate, the unconscious is active in each and every moment. What varies is the distance between the images or the thoughts we have and their hidden core structures those parts of the unconscious that still remain entirely obscured to us. If the underlying structure is to change, it must at some point represent itself on the surface of the mind. Deep changes take time, as I've said, sometimes a great deal of time, and often short interruptions in our regular practice of meditation can have a negative impact on this process. But when change does occur, the free mental attitude gradually characterizes larger areas of our daily life and has widespread ramifications for the ways we experience life, conduct ourselves, pursue our goals and relate to others. When we undergo a successful process of change, it affects everything from how we breathe to how we express ourselves in intimate relationships. So we're engaged in a process of personal growth. When we talk about personal growth or changes of deep underlying structures of our psyche, we tend to make it sound like perfection is the ultimate goal. It is our stance, however, that personality changes obtained through professional therapy, alternative growth programs or any form of meditation will, if they work at all, only achieve, at best, small and gradual changes. This is not to say that these changes are not important. In fact, they are fundamental and have considerable significance for the individual. What I am suggesting, rather, is that perfection is not an appropriate goal for the psychological growth. 
we should also not allow ourselves to be seduced by forms of psychological experience, catharsis, dramatic reenactments, primal scream therapy or rebirthing, that do not demand that we engage with the slow and difficult process of bringing about change in the deep structures of the mind. Such experiences may be fine in and of themselves, and they often give us a great sense of relief. But they must go hand in hand with the deeper changes that can be achieved through meditation. It is only then that we will see the benefits to our external life, our world of relations and commitments. We might want to think of our meditation as a kind of training in how to live, because it demands that we learn how to strike a balance between exerting our will and acting spontaneously and without any sense of need or compulsion. That certainly makes sense. I'm wondering, though, if we could return for a moment to the problem of concentration. How can we reconcile the free mental attitude required of us in meditation with the concentration that daily life requires of us? In order to function well in daily life, after all, we have to be able to concentrate, to put certain things on the back burner, to be able to focus on something else. There may seem to be a basic contradiction between the free mental attitude required of us in meditation, which should involve no effort, and the concentration required of us in daily life, which we tend to think of as a positive and necessary thing. We usually think of concentration as a virtue that enables us to achieve our goals whether it be to grasp the contents of a book or to do well when we're participating in sports. What we need to understand is that there is an important difference between the concentration that is so important to us in daily life, a concentration that results from conscious choices, and, on the other hand, the concentration that impedes our progress in meditation, that is, a concentration that is under the sway of the unconscious. In our daily lives, there is interference from the unconscious, but unless we have fairly troubled minds, the interference does not keep us from achieving our goals, whatever they may be. When we are meditating, however, there is a greater level of interference from the unconscious. But the meditation itself allows us to release some of the strain and stress that the interference causes. Meditation works on liberating us from the sources of interference. So meditation helps to diminish the unconscious interference with our ability to concentrate so that we can focus on what we wish to accomplish in life. It increases our ability to focus on tasks and at the same time reduces our tendency to have unconscious distractions. Concentration is a process of exclusion and as such it is beneficial to us in our external life but destructive in our internal life.
It is the very opposite of a free mental attitude. When we maintain a free mental attitude, we are able to accept all aspects of ourselves. In meditation, a free mental attitude allows us to experience both the pleasing and the disturbing. Through it, we accept even the restlessness that results from unconscious sources of tension. When we repeat the meditation sound without any effort or anxiety, we experience a form of emancipation that enhances our self-esteem and our ability to express ourselves. This is another way of saying that correct repetition of the meditation sound allows us to accept and permit a certain degree of interference. This, in turn, allows the unconscious mind to express to us various hidden and sometimes forbidden parts of ourselves. When we accept these aspects of ourselves, we initiate a dynamic but gradual process of inner change that allows us to acknowledge more and more aspects of ourselves without inhibition or condemnation. But there is no denying that maintaining a free mental attitude is a challenge. I suggested earlier that there is a positive aspect of interference, but there is also no doubt that the interference from the unconscious exerts a considerable force upon us. It does more than just distract the mind from pursuing the act of repeating the sound with a free mental attitude. Because it fears change, it does everything it can to preserve its current psychological structures. If we don't realize that, we're up against this considerable force. And if we can't find a way to get out from under the sway of the unconscious, we will start to concentrate without realizing that we have inadvertently brought about a significant change in the act of meditation. That said, it is important to understand that this interference is inevitable. There is no point in trying to stay on guard against it. If we make this mistake, we fall into the trap of repeating the meditation sound in a self-conscious way that defeats its purpose. As we have tried to emphasize more than once, it is of paramount importance that we adhere to the basic rule of Arca meditation when we are meditating. And that's so by repeating our meditation sound without force, effort or strain. We should not, however, feel guilty if we forget to keep repeating the meditation sound. Whenever we realize that this is what we have done, we should not react as if we have made a mistake, but should instead treat the moment or moments of forgetting as an inevitable part of the meditation process. We should make it our task to return to the meditation sound, but should also make sure that we do not do so with force or rigor. We should repeat the sound as 
gently and with the same carefreeness that we did before we forgot it. We should never ever believe that such moments represent our failure to practice our meditation efficiently and should never let ideas of efficiency or rigor inform our meditation practice. Isn't it possible that we may not realize that we've let ourselves become prey to unconscious sources of interference? What if we start concentrating without realizing that's what we're doing? In fact, it is more likely than not. That's exactly what we will do. But there are several ways around this problem. We might want to stay in touch with other meditators so that we can share our experiences with them. We might want to learn more about Arca meditation by reading an article or listening to a recording or attending a presentation. Finally, we might want to discuss our meditation experiences with a qualified meditation counselor. We could do this as often or as infrequently as we like. We may also find it helpful to lengthen the meditation period, but this should only be attempted in the context of a retreat or a similar setting in which qualified meditation guides are available to discuss the meditative experience with us shortly after it has taken place. A meditation guide or counselor can be extremely helpful in identifying meditation practices that are detracting from our experience. What would you say is the principal goal of Arkham meditation? To accept and to include. To allow us to confront and accept that which is unfinished in us. To meditate implies that we are willing to consider our imperfections from time to time through the performance of meditation. Encountering our imperfections is, in fact, an important challenge of the meditation process. We tend to dislike imperfection, to despise it, to look down upon it, to feel ashamed of it and to hide it. But if we can accept our imperfections, we will relieve our sense of shame and lessen our sense of guilt. There is a way in which the free mental attitude of our meditation is a lot like love between human beings. Through it, we learn to accept the self as in love we accept the other without conditions. We learn to relate to ourselves in our totality without depriving ourselves of the impetus for further change and self-improvement. We learn to sympathize with ourselves and achieve a sense of intimacy even with those parts of ourselves which we do not find easy to accept. So in meditation, we tend to react negatively to any hint of the presence of something that we haven't resolved, because it suggests we're imperfect. How do we recognize this tendency in ourselves? Restlessness is one important sign that something is making us uncomfortable. We may not experience any restlessness until near the end of our half hour. 
but sooner or later it will express itself. What causes it? Is it the way we're sitting, our annoyance with our boss or our parents, the weather, our strained muscles or sore back, a personality trait? We need to understand that we experience restlessness when the unconscious resists providing us with a clearer idea or image of limiting personality traits, an emotional conflict or a traumatic memory. We may find ourselves wrestling with our restlessness as if it were an antagonist. If we do this, we end up treating a part of ourselves as if it bore no relation to us at all. We disown it, and we may become angry if we feel it is impeding our meditation. It is even possible that we may treat it as if we were engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat, in which one or the other of us, ourselves or our restlessness, must perish. This struggle discloses how divided we are against ourselves. The challenge is to relate to the restlessness with our repetition of the meditation sound. The very purpose of the free mental attitude is to accept any feelings that arise without falling prey to the compunction to repress them. If we feel restless, we must accept that restlessness and make no attempt to do something about it. In the act of accepting the restlessness, we initiate change, even though this change will not necessarily take place on a conscious level. How are we to understand the free mental attitude in a wider context? What parallels are there between our relations to our inner, spontaneous mental life and our relationship to other people? In the freedom of meditation, we give room to that which is human in us. We let ourselves go in order to become closer to ourselves. We engage in the very same process that takes place when we express love for someone else. And we learn not to judge either ourselves or others by not judging the spontaneous activities in which our mind engages. We let everything pass in its own way, regardless of what we think or feel about it. We simply take in, recognize and accept the content and the implicit attitudes of these spontaneous mental activities. When we let what has previously been repressed finally be expressed, we make it possible for ourselves to change. This change will be gradual. There will be no revolution in our thought, no sudden or instant sense of salvation. But there will be change, and it will be slow and important like the growth of the root of a tree. And one of the values we learn is the value of not having expectations of any kind whatsoever. Any act of concentration implies just the opposite. 
we concentrate because we are wishing for something very particular to result from our actions or because we believe that the act of concentration will keep things as they usually are, the way they were yesterday and the way we would like them to continue to be tomorrow. But it is only when we let go of our expectations, both our expectations of what makes for a good act of meditation and our ideas about what our meditation ought to bring us, that we will be able to discover new aspects of ourselves. For it is only when we meditate with a non-directed free mental attitude that we will be able to grasp the silent, concealed movements of the psyche, only then that we will be able to see beyond our habitual experiences and the driving needs of the moment. And partly what this means is that when we are meditating we should be open to the unexpected, the surprising and even the unwanted. That is what existing in the present is all about. We learn how to be open to the world, to our unconscious selves and to the interplay between them. Our only hope of achieving some kind of reconciliation between our conscious and our unconscious selves lies in maintaining our free mental attitude. Only this will allow us to develop a relationship with the aspects of our unconscious that come nearer to the surface when we meditate. Those who want psychological growth and self-discovery cannot hope to achieve it by following any existing recipe for the work of acquiring self-knowledge in meditation as in the rest of our lives involves all kinds of surprising discoveries. We are often subject to important things for a long time before we understand how this thing, whatever it may be, has a grip on us. This suggests that the more our minds are caught up in expectations produced by what we have read or heard, wished or expected, the more our minds are imprisoned. And the less this barrier-breaking attitude that we call free mental attitude is able to make use of the possibilities for optimal growth. So we should be prepared for the unpleasant as well as the pleasant when we're meditating. What we need to be when we are meditating is creative, autonomous and cooperative. There is no such thing as an absolutely correct or ideal act of meditation. And proper meditation is a question of degree. But the one thing that is certain is that it is our free mental attitude that liberates us and enables progress. And this free mental attitude expresses itself as a creative, receptive mode in which we comprehend new things about ourselves, about our relationships and the outside world. And that means we are prepared to deal with the ugly as well as the beautiful. 
So we always have to be open to whatever presents itself in the spontaneous flow of images and thoughts that we experience in meditation. We have to let things play themselves out. And we have to find some way to repeat the meditation sound that allows the images and thoughts to flow more and more freely. There is an important sense in which the repetition of the meditation sound makes us ethically conscious individuals. As we learn to stop lying to ourselves, we reorient ourselves ethically in relationship to the rest of the world. The honesty that detends our free mental attitude reveals itself to us as one of the many prerequisites for new insight, self-realization and knowledge of the world. And as we gain knowledge of the self, we are more likely to act ethically. We relearn, in effect, the ancient ethos of our Greek forefathers and the ethical principles that underlie the imperative Know thyself. The free attitude also implies an analytical stance, a readiness to reassess established truths and self-conceptions rather than living by and acting on preconceptions. It allows us to make use of our ability not to let our experience be overshadowed by earlier decisions, emotional investments, conventions or old truths. The free attitude of acceptance doesn't thereby become something neutral and disinterested. It represents an attitude to life with consequences not just for the individual but for society. Meditation revitalizes us or gives us a certain strength but it does not allow us to use that strength for just anything. It will not permit us to expend our energy, for example, on fascism or racism, not, at any rate, if we let it lead us to greater self-awareness. This is because we derive from the free mental attitude new sensitivity and an ability to confront all aspects of ourselves. This renewed introspection or capacity to look inwards finds its outward expression in empathy, the ability to relate sensitively to other people. This empathy contributes to what is best in our democracies, which are grounded in respect for the individual and the desire and capacity to uphold freedom for others as well as oneself. As a result, the work that we do when we meditate may, with some justification, be set in a broader context than its implications for the individual. At the same time, it is clear that it is the free mental attitude of the individual in the repetition of the meditation sound that forms the basis for further social ramifications of meditation. When we meditate, what we in effect do is work through a great deal of the unresolved tensions of the day. Conversations, arguments, achievements and failures, uncompleted tasks, urgent problems, they all leave an emotional or cognitive residue that creates a certain level of stress. 
They may return to our attention during meditation with some force. And that's good, because meditation allows us to work on the residual impressions of the day in order to put them away in mental storage. It lets us integrate the emotional and cognitive leftovers from the day back into our current psychological structures. Since every day furnishes us with an array of new experiences and residual impressions, daily meditation allows us to keep pace with the process of integration so that we can experience relaxation, rest and relief. Dealing with our daily experiences in this way is maturing and enriching. We should not, however, make the mistake of assigning this integration to ourselves as a daily task, for then we are making a mistake very similar to the one we make if we compel ourselves to concentrate. All aspects of meditation should be spontaneous and undirected, Setting priorities is an important part of our daily lives, but meditation provides us with an opportunity to indulge in the opposite, to surrender the need to direct and control events. This in order to let the unconscious do its work. As we give the unconscious greater and greater freedom through meditation, more and more undercurrents of the mind surface in order to become a part of the conscious mind. This process represents a more profound form of integration that brings together different and often opposing parts of ourselves. It is a process that revivifies dormant parts of the self in order to unite them with the conscious self. It may seem like a process that is oriented towards comprehensiveness and completion, but its work can, in fact, never be fully done. What we're really doing, then, when we meditate is continually improving our access to the spontaneous activity of the mind, a process which can never be complete since the mind is always in flux. When we immerse ourselves in this work, we experience personal growth. This growth is not, however, a matter of greater intellectual understanding, but manifests itself, rather, in our increased ability to act in new ways and to accept and adjust to new experiences. The growth we experience means different things in the different phases of our lives. The younger we are, the greater the degree to which external events will determine both the progress and the limitations of our experience. But once we have passed the age of, say, 19 or 20, we will find that contact with our inner life is increasingly more important to us and yields us a deeper and deeper satisfaction. It becomes increasingly important for us to find an inner space in which we can grow psychologically, especially since our society is increasingly influenced by technology, science and bureaucracy, 
forms of organization which tend to emphasize the explicit, the overt and the objective over the inner dimensions of human experience. In this context, it is important for us to remember our need to work through the issues of our inner lives so that we can live in the way best, not just for ourselves but for society. To do that, we must remember the key phrase free mental attitude and everything it means for the practice and processes of Arkham meditation. This audio recording for practitioners of Arkham meditation is based on an interview with Dr. Ara Holan. Arkham is a non-profit organisation teaching Arkham meditation and group processes to enhance personal development. The organisation originated in Norway and is now active in several countries in Europe, America and Asia. You'll find more information on Arkham and Arkham meditation at arkem.com, A-C-E-M dot C-O-M.